Welcome to the Immigrant Entrepreneurs Podcast, episode 82. My name is Zelina Warwick, and today we have Tal Frankfurt on the show. When I was in, I think, fourth grade, we had to wear gas masks to school. And I remember taking that gas mask with me. That was during the Gulf War. So I, you know, I was, we were joking that there, it could be much worse. Tal is originally from Israel, and in Israel, Tal was the director of research development for a nonprofit organization that worked with at-risk immigrant youth in Israel. He was looking for tools to better manage his donors, participants, and volunteers, and it was through this experience that Tal learned all about Salesforce. The adoption of Salesforce into his everyday work was what sparked the inception of his business. When Tal came from Israel, he was 26 years old with his wife, and he went looking for a job because his wife was a full-time student. He got nowhere, and he realized that no one wanted to hire someone with a different name and with an accent. So he started his company, Cloud for Good, merely out of a necessity. Only four months into his company, he signed a six-figure contract and now he operates with 100 amazing and talented employees. Cloud for Good is a three-time Salesforce.org Partner of the Year, certified B Corp, and a seven times Inc. 5000 company that creates transformation value for nonprofit organizations and higher education institutions with Salesforce. Tal originally studied business administration in college back home and how he started a software company without any computer science degree is going to surprise you. So let's dive right in and hear all about his journey. All right, Tal, thank you so, so much for coming on the Immigrant Entrepreneurs Podcast. I truly appreciate your time and I'm so, so excited to hear all about your journey. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about your immigrant journey. Tell us where you're from and when did you come to the United States? So I'm originally from Israel, from a city called Netanya, which is about 30 minutes north of Tel Aviv. I came to the U.S. in late 2009. I actually was here before, and I think around 2004, 2005, for a year and a half. That's where I met my wife in Conway, Arkansas. And then we moved together back to Israel, where I finished my bachelor's degree and at a Hebrew university in Jerusalem. And then we moved back to the U.S. in late 2009. Okay, so why were you out here the first time originally? <laughs> so I was in a program that is probably most similar to a Peace Corps. They basically send the young Israelis right after their military service to volunteer in small Jewish communities around the country. So I ended up in the Little Rock, Arkansas. I always tell people that most Israelis after their army service work for six months, then they go travel and, you know, you can see a lot of Israelis in their 22, 23 in South America and Australia and Thailand and India. And I ended up in Little Rock, Arkansas, which was fun and educational. <laughs> and most importantly, I met my wife. I love it. And for those listeners who don't know, Israel still mandates everyone, both male and females, to go to the army at the age of 18. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And what did you do in the army? I was in infantry for the first two years. And then for about a year, I was in a unit that was teaching basically instructors on how to teach. That was a lot of fun. Oh, nice. The first part was less fun. The second part was much more fun. <laughs> and you said infantry. What is that? Basically, a squad commander, basically in combat. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm thinking of like baby infants, like <laughs> <laughs> somewhere in an infant unit. <laughs> that would probably be a very similar, but also <laughs> very different at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so true. All right. So tell me, what was it like growing up in Israel? It was a lot of fun, you know, overall childhood, probably very similar to what Americans are experiencing with some small differences or big differences. You know, I was talking with someone about we're recording this while the pandemic is still out there and in most places, we're still wearing masks. When I was in, I think, fourth grade, we had to wear gas masks to school. And I remember taking that gas mask with me. That was during the Gulf War. 
So I, you know, I was, we were joking that there, it could be much worse than caring, you know, for our kids wearing masks at school. But, you know, other than these small anecdotes, it was really regular, normal childhood in Israel. Okay, so Tal, when I was in Israel back in 2005 and 2006, people were walking around on the beach. The army guys were walking around on the beach with like really big guns. <laughs> so that's kind of different from America. So and then when we would go to the malls, they would, you know, pop our trunks to make sure all the safety and security protocols are there. So tell me about the war situation. Did you experience, you know, active war? Any of that? So, you know, first of all, the difference, you might see guns in the streets because people go, you know, majority of Israelis between 18 to 21 serve in the military. So, you know, when they go back home, they take the rifles with them. But at the same time, I can't go to a Walmart and buy a gun like in the U.S. So on one hand, you know, more common, but more for military use than just uh, everyday or hunting use. It sounds like, yes, there are weapons on the street to some extent, to some extent but, <laughs> you know, the beach is beautiful. The food is by far the best food. You know, I'm a little biased, but we are Israel is a country of immigrants. So there are people coming from probably about 100 different countries. And what it created is a completely new cuisine of Israeli food. The junk food that you buy on the street or fast food in the street is everything from Australian schnitzel to, you know, shawarma and hummus and falafel. Mm -hmm. So that's quite unique. Overall, it's more normal than not. I have to say I'm in Memphis right now. I feel much safer. I'm just in Memphis visiting my in-laws. You know, I feel much safer in Israel than in many other parts of this country. <laughs> wow. OK, so tell me, did you experience any active war when you were in Israel? Active war, probably not. While I was in the army, I was in Gaza for two years. Okay. So definitely experienced that. Yes. Okay. So that's probably it. the closest. <laughs> All right. So growing up, what did you envision for your life? What was it like? Okay, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to do this. I want to be a lawyer. You, you wanted that, to be a lawyer. Okay. I really wanted to be a lawyer. And was that the path that your parents wanted you to go on? And you went to school in Israel and you didn't study law. So tell us a little bit about that. My parents really encouraged us to like education was super important. I don't feel like they pressured us to go in any specific direction. My mom is a teacher and my dad is an electrician. They didn't really push us in a specific direction, but they really encouraged us to invest a lot in education. So that, that was always number one in our house. I really wanted to be a lawyer. Like, you know, when I was still in elementary all the way to high school, I think I sat on, I audited a few classes at the university. So I really was that child that was so determined to be a lawyer. And I just sat on this different classes. I'm so happy I didn't go up and become a lawyer later. <laughs> uh, I guess we'll talk about that later. But as I said, we went to the U.S. for about two, for a year and a half, two years. Then I came back. I just studied business and communication. College was a great experience. Very different college experience than here in the U.S. You know, I was 24 when I started and I was by far not the oldest. So I'd say probably 24, 25 is, is the average age of college students, right? Mm -hmm. Because again, the army, then go travel somewhere, hopefully more fun than Little Rock, Arkansas, which is a wonderful <laughs> place, and then go back and start college. It gives you a whole different perspective. So maybe less college parties and more, hey, this is really what I want to do or what I like. I can actually concentrate on what I really want to do in life. So it was a great, I really enjoyed it. Awesome. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. So tell me the journey to United States. So my wife was accepted to a PhD. So she's originally from Memphis. So we ended up at the University of Memphis. She did a PhD in clinical psychology. So I followed her. And so that was like late 2009. Now, a second before that, so while I was in at school, I was also doing fundraising for uh, a small nonprofit in Israel that helped at-risk youth, mainly immigrants from the former Soviet Union at the time, Russian speaking. And we were looking for better tools to manage our donors and volunteers. And someone said, oh, you should try Salesforce. It's free. So I got excited about it. I self-implemented Salesforce for our organization. 
and I wanted to share my knowledge. So I started the second Salesforce user group outside of the U.S. That group had about five or 10 different people. When I started it, late 2009, when I left, we were more than 100 people that were attending. And, you know, people kept asking me questions. So I started consulting on Salesforce. And that was kind of like the, the beginning of my consulting career. Mm-hmm. When I moved to the U.S., I was looking for a job. So I normally don't say that when I talk with prospects and clients, yeah. right? Like the, there is stories like I moved here. I was really looking for a job. We rented a one bedroom apartment above my father-in-law's office and we were just looking to pay rent. My wife was uh, studying full time. So I interviewed for probably three, four, something like that months. And I got zero job offers. I think no one wanted to hire the guy with the accent and the different name. And yeah, I, I got pretty far. You know, I even flew somewhere on my at my expense for an interview, which wow. I think is mind blowing for me right now. And I was like, I can't believe that they made me pay for uh, yeah. for this interview. But I got zero job offers. So around January 2010, I started Cloud for Good as a job, not as a business. Right. I was just looking for a way to kind of like to engage with clients or look for clients in the U.S. doing Salesforce consulting. So I started Cloud for Good as a job and it's just, it grew from there. Oh, wow. Okay. And so tell me, how old were you when you and your wife moved back to the United States? So that was what, 11 years ago? Uh, So 27, 26. 26, 27. Okay. And so tell me again, when you started working with Salesforce, was that, you said it was free and did you partner up with them or what did you do with them again? Yeah. So Salesforce has uh, what they call their philanthropic models called one, one, one. So 1% of their time, they volunteer, 1% of their equity, they donate, and 1% of their product, they give for free to nonprofit organizations. So if you're a 501c3 in the US, you're eligible to get 10 free enterprise licenses from Salesforce. So that's, that's the free part. We now say that it's free, like free puppies, you know, you still have to take them out, you still have to clean after them and listen to the house (laughs) train, right? So really, that's what we do, right? Like we will help the customers implement Salesforce, customize it for them, and so on. So that's the free part. Okay, so you just got experience with that. And then when you came to United States, because you didn't, you couldn't get a job, you started cloud for good out of a necessity. Completely out of a necessity. So everywhere we're, we're talking about entrepreneurship and you know, people that have really bold ideas and they go and pursue these bold ideas. Like I always tell people, like I didn't have this carriage and like big audacity here on like starting something new and really pursuing it. I, I didn't really have a choice. I just couldn't find a job. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so tell me a little bit about the beginning stages of Cloud for Good. What were the first few steps that you took and where did you go to get started? Yes, I didn't really know what to do. So (laughs) part of what I was, you know, it took me about four months to sign my first client. In these four months, I mainly spent my time and and also in that late 2009 period when I was still interviewing, there were different Salesforce boards, the Salesforce community, the success community didn't exist at that point or Trailblazer community didn't exist at that point. If you're familiar with the ecosystem right now, there were just a lot of boards and people were asking questions on these boards. And there was like a Google group of nonprofits asking questions. And really all I did was just, I was sitting in front of the computer and just answering people's questions because I didn't have anything else to do at that time. And then Salesforce announced that they basically chose the top one day I get a call and they're like, Hey, we're starting this MVP program that we want you to be part of it. And we're basically choosing the top 1% of our community. And because of your participation in the community, we want you to be part of that inaugural class. I think we were about 15 people. So by joining that MVP group, it gave me a lot of exposure into Salesforce. We're talking early days, like, you know, 2010. I can tell you a funny story from even earlier if you want. But like, yeah, that gave me a lot of exposure into Salesforce. That gave me a lot of kind of like ability to use their platform to promote my services and build my brand. That was completely, that's a definitely a blessing that I got into that program that we didn't really know what it was. Like, I didn't really understand what they mean when they say Salesforce MVP. Now I think there are about 300 of us out there. 
that was really the beginning. I was answering questions and every once in a while someone would say, oh, I'll pay you. You'll help me with this, like implementing this app from the app exchange or create this small merge for me. That was the, my first client was $500 client. So if you think about it, it took me four months to find them and then it was $500. I made about $500 cumulatively wow. over four months. And, you know, my wife still stayed with me, which is, that's the, the real miracle uh, there. <laughs> so how did you guys survive? I mean, you didn't have like a job job and your wife was a student. Student. How did you guys survive and pay your bills and eat? We basically went through some savings until we almost got through all of it. We definitely survived. We were fine. You know, our family was, our family's here and they were super supportive. So it's not like I came into complete not knowing anyone. We at least had my wife certainly to lean on, which was definitely helpful. And it moved really fast after the first four months. I think by June, I signed a deal that was a six-figure deal that I won against Deloitte. So it moved really fast. The funny thing is that I had about six months. It was more than, it was close to 2,000-hour project. I had to deliver it. I started a process in June. We really signed it in October. They had to go live in February. More than 1,000 hours, and it was just me. So there's a lot of work, but it, it moved from there. It was basically signing another client and another client. And at some point I had a great mentor that just said, you really have to hire. You can't just do it yourself. And I hired my first employee and I trained him. I couldn't really find a lot of Salesforce experts in Memphis at that point. And I trained him from the ground up. And a few months later, he was busy and he couldn't handle more work. So we, had, we hired our second employee. And it really grew like that very organically by just being too busy to the extent that we have to grow until I finally made that kind of like recognition that, hey, this is not a job anymore. It's a business. And you just start thinking about it as a business. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. So this all stemmed from you just getting so knowledgeable about Salesforce. You weren't even an employee of Salesforce, right? No, I was not an employee of Salesforce. Yeah, so you were kind of just helping other nonprofits, is that correct? Through yeah. the application and the services that Salesforce offered. Correct. Nonprofits, higher ed. And, and, you know, for those that are not familiar with Salesforce, right, like that's probably the largest CRM, customer relationship management solution out there today, or, you know, in the nonprofit space or higher ed constituent relationship management. So what we do is, yeah, we support the implementation and the, the transformation that happens when you implement technology. Got it. Okay. So tell me, did you have to raise any capital to start Cloud for Good? I did not. It was a lot of sweat equity. I didn't raise any capital to start Cloud for Good. And I also did it by myself. So I don't have a partner. I don't have a technical, I don't know, am I the business partner or the, the technical partner? I'm not <laughs> sure. But I play both roles. So now, again, it's it was completely bootstrapped. Uh, it is completely bootstrapped. Mm -hmm. And we just grew organically. Wow. Amazing. I love that. And I love bootstrapped, starting slow and growing organically. And so tell me, what does Cloud for Good look like today? Today, we are, we're about to cross the 100 full-time employees next month. So substantial growth from that. Thank you. We're Inc. 5000 list for the seven year in a row. We are a great place to work for eight years in a row. We actually just won Salesforce.org Partner of the Year, both in the nonprofit and education spaces. This is our third year winning the Nonprofit Partner of the Year Award and actually the only one that has ever won it because they only started giving it three years ago. Mm -hmm. So we have grown from, you know, kind of like a just one guy working out of Memphis and, you know, everybody was like, oh, Memphis, not really the, the startup place or high tech place to we are now the largest salesforce.org which is the, the entity that focuses on the nonprofit higher ed section part we're the largest partner that that's what that's what they do right everyone we're competing with partners that are also doing work in the nonprofit space and a lot of kind of like these big global strategic partners are our main competition at this point so what sets your company apart? Yeah, so I'd say it's a few things. I think that the first thing is that, right, is this is not an oh, by the way, we also want to do work with nonprofit or higher ed. Like, our people come from these verticals? 
So we understand what they mean when they say fundraising or advancement, recruitment admissions or case management management or volunteer management. Like we speak the language, the vertical, the industry language, while also everyone on my team is Salesforce certified. Actually, the average consultant, Salesforce consultant at Cloud for Good has more than five Salesforce certifications. So we're bringing that deep Salesforce experience and nonprofit expertise So I'd say that's one. The second thing, because we've been doing this for so long, we've built a lot of assets and accelerators that get our clients up and running faster and reduce that risk in the migration. So a lot of little apps and a lot of different kind of like solutions that we've built that kind of like streamline the data migration process or streamline some of the functionality that might be missing from Salesforce that they're used to having in other solutions. And then the last thing is, is just our methodology, right? Like that's how, where the magic and how the magic really happens is uh, how we go through that transformational process with our customers. That whole methodology also sets us apart. So tell me, Tal, when you were studying business and what you're doing now, there's, it seems like a lot of IT engineering involved and Salesforce and cloud and all kinds of computer related items. So did you read some books to get yourself educated on that part or what did you do that helped you to go forward? Yeah, school was great. School really helped me think like or kind of like build a way of how to think about things. I can't say that I took something that I learned at school and, you know, I implemented that. I, I am not right. I didn't go to computer science. I, didn't have, I don't have a computer science degree. Right. Uh, it was a lot of trial and error. It, it was just, you know, getting my hands on the keyboard and, and just starting and playing with it. You know, when I said earlier that I self-implemented it for our organization, I probably self-implemented it for us three or four times because I did it wrong and I just reset everything, started from scratch and did it again. And hey, I did it, I did it wrong again. So there was a lot of trial and error. I get really focused on something. I spent a lot of time on it. It's just kind of like how I operate until I learn everything about it. That's just how my brain works. So completely self-taught. Completely self-taught, yes. Yes. <laughs> And there were not a lot of resources at that point. I think right now, if you want to learn Salesforce, there's Trailhead, which is kind of like an online free virtual training. Um, there is a very strong community. There, there wasn't much mm-hmm. at that point. So a lot of, I feel like a lot of people that started on Salesforce in you know 2005, 2006, all are self-taught basically and a lot of classes out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is what I just want to hone to our listeners listening is, is you do not have to have all these certifications and all these like really big degrees to do something brand new. And it's okay if you're an immigrant, it's okay if you don't know how to operate something, but go and get yourself plugged in, get yourself plugged in into networking groups and stuff online. There's such a wealth of information online that America has these days. And Tal, you're just shown proof that anyone can start something brand new in a brand new country. And tell me, you were, it was four months when you first moved to the United States. That's when you launched Cloud for Good? Something like that. Yes. Okay. So was that crazy to you or that was just like normal? I'm just going to see how it goes and we'll see where it takes me. Again, I just didn't have another option. Like there was just no, I didn't get any job offers. I remember talking with our, I went to this accountant and just to talk about how I'm doing. And she's like, I remember she was saying, she's like, oh, this is really bad, Tal. You really need to, <laughs> you really have to re, you really have to think about this again, right? Like it's not, and the amount of times that I've heard from people it's not going to work because you're from Memphis. It's not going to work because you're not from here. It's not going to work because, you know, how are you going to start? So I like the other thing is we were completely virtual. So I have not had a space since 2010. We've not had a virtual, we've not had an office, right? So I have people in close to 30 different states, three different or four different Canadian provinces. They're all full-time. They're not 1099s. They're all full-time employees. And we're able to build this strong culture for people that are, you know, are staying here for seven, eight, nine years. And we're doing that all virtually. And yes, now with the pandemic, everybody's like, oh, we can do virtual. But in (laughs) 2011, 
no one thought that virtual is going to work. There are not a lot, there's not a lot of research around virtual. There are not a lot of books about virtual. So the amount of times that I've heard, no, you cannot do this or no, it's not going to work is just, is just everywhere. So, you know, I, I always tell people just, if you really believe in something, go ahead and try it. Trust yourself uh, that you can execute. Now, at the same time, it's, it's always good to stop and evaluate. And, you know, if I don't know if I have not signed any clients the entire 2010, uh, should I continue doing uh, Cloud for Good? Probably not. But I think if I gave up every time someone said you cannot do something, uh, we would never be where we are today. So, so powerful. Amazing. So I'm hearing culture is very important in startups. So tell me a little bit about some of the things that you implemented to retain amazing talent for, you said, seven, eight years for such a long time. What are some things that you've implemented? Yeah, so I think that the most important thing is your, are your core values. A very conservative thought about kind of like the culture and the meaning of a culture, like because it's a common thing. Every time I get somebody, I interview someone, it's like, oh, I heard about the great culture at College for Good, and you guys are growing every year. How are you going to maintain that culture? And I don't think you can maintain a culture, right? Like I can, I cannot maintain a culture of 30 people when I'm 60 and I can maintain a culture of 60 people when I'm 200 people, right? Like that is just not mm -hmm. possible. What mm -hmm. I can do is I can maintain my core values and I can maintain the overall tone at the organization, right? So like, it's important to kind of like stop and think and, and then even reevaluate. We've, we've gone through a process of reevaluating our core values a couple of times now, right? Think what are these core values that you really believe in that are going to be the foundation of everything that you do at the company and really go after them. So like one of the key things that were super important for me when we redid our core values is I didn't want any of the aspirational values that are really great with marketing and you put them on your website and you never look at them ever like again, that we are the best in this and we are the greatest in that. And right. Like, so my main request from the team was like, Hey, we're only going to implement core values that we're either already doing today, or we can stop and start doing tomorrow, right? Stop doing what we're doing today and start implementing these core values tomorrow. Right. And when these are attainable core values, then they should lead every decision that you make. It's hiring, firing, starting new lines of business, right? Who do you work with and who you don't work with? Who do you partner with and who you don't partner with? So I'd say spend some time on your core values and make them real core values and not just something that you, you put on your website. The other thing is, right, especially in a virtual environment, we have to be very intentional about everything that we do. So I think every business has to be intentional about stuff. But when you're fully virtual, you have to be more intentional about who you are and how you onboard them and how you measure success, right? Like what does success mean like for every role that we have at CloudFigure? And these roles are evolving. Like the people that were with me five years ago, they're doing completely different work right now. So being intentional about the work, celebrating the success, these are kind of like some of the key things that I think are helping us create that ongoing growth of culture within Cloud for Good. And so what are some of the core values that you've implemented? Yeah, so I think that the foundation of all our values is trust, right? So, and trust, and we go through very deeply about what does it mean and what does it mean? So, for example, trust is not about doing what you said you're going to do when you said you're going to do it. <laughs> right. That's just being that's just being accountable. Right. Yes. I'm accountable. I did what I said I'm going to do. That's great. The next level is saying, right, like, hey, I don't know something and have someone else raise their hand and say, hey, I got your back. It's OK. I'll show you that. Right. Like so sharing your failure, not just with your manager, because people are afraid to share their failure with their manager because that's going to come back in the, you know, in the annual bonus or increase or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want them to just share it with their manager. I want them to share it with the rest of the company because I don't want anyone else making the same mistake again. That's really where trust create the trust starts. And we're learning, which is another core value that we have, right? Like you can't learn without making mistakes. You can't learn without taking any risks. So, right, when we share our mistakes, when we share our learning, that's where other people can learn and, and not make the same mistakes again. So just two, two examples of kind of like how we think about our core values. So Tal, you've never had a business before Cloud for Good, but now you're managing 100 <clears throat> employees. 
How do you take that leadership role? What are some things that you've learned? What are some tactics that you've brought on yourself to help you as far as managing and leadership goes for the 100 employees? First of all, when I was six, I was selling lemons from my grandmother's. She had lemons and mangoes, so I would I was yes. going door to door selling lemons and mangoes. Oh, I uh, love that it. That was my first business, uh, <laughs> six or five. <laughs> but you I know, love I, it. So this is business number two. <laughs> business number two. Yes. How do you manage a hundred people? So the answer is, you as the entrepreneur cannot do it yourself. Right? At some point, where you make a decision that this is a business. There needs to be there need to be other people within the organization that you can trust that can help you grow the business, right? Mm-hmm. So we've brought in people that have done this before. So we have two types of people at Cloud for Good. Let's say one are the people that they have done this before. They've grown a company. They've done from you know five to fifty, or they've implemented very large, very complex projects before, and they're bringing it to Cloud for Good and helping us grow. The other type of people are these kind of like expendable people. Like they're people that have been here for six, seven, eight, nine years right? Their role kept changing over the years. So like finding these two types of personas, I think it's critical to managing the team. The other thing is I lean on mentors. I joke with people, I always take free advice. Doesn't mean I'm going to do it, but listening and learning from other people and other people's mistakes is key. I joined peer CEO group probably in 2014 or maybe it was even earlier. Was PR CEO group? Peer, like uh, other oh. similar, yeah, it's so, like it's called Vistage. So basically they bring in, I think with, there were about 14 CEOs from different industries, all meeting on a, on a monthly. So we have like a full day every month where we're all sitting and processing different issues together. And then there is a co- there is a, a chair or coach that or mentor that basically sits with us one-on-one and holds us accountable for a lot of our decisions. So learning from other CEOs, learning from other peers was very critical in in building a business. What about books? Did you read any leadership books or business books? I have. And definitely, you know, there's the Basecamp book about remote work and, and there are some others. I am, while I enjoy reading, I have not, I don't know that books have completely changed kind of like my thinking around Mm -hmm. running a business. I'm more of a Mm hands-on type of learner. I have read books, a lot of books about business, but I, I much prefer kind of like actually either hearing from another CL, which is, you know, this is great about Mm -hmm. podcasts, for example, Uh, just like hearing other stories and learning from their mistakes rather than just reading about it. Okay, so you've mentioned mentors. Where did you find your mentors? I've always had a mentor when I was doing fundraising, amazing mentor that helped me kind of like think about fundraising and help kind of like shape how my role at that organization. When I started Cloud for Good, I was working from like a co-working space, which was a kind of like an opportunity for me to meet people. And one of the entrepreneurs there just went through an exit and he just kind of like took me under his wing and again, yeah, became my mentor. So I, I don't know exactly how it evolved to that, but organically, <laughs> it, yeah, I like everything else, very organic. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that he just went through a lot of at a much bigger scale of building a business and he had a lot of experiences that he wanted to share and I wanted to learn and I wanted to know. So I think part of it is being open to mentorship. And I think that a good mentor is also looking to learn. So like, this is not, I don't think the relationships are unidirectional. Mm -hmm. So when you think about a mentor, the mentor needs to get something out of it too. And not just the altruistic aspect of I am, I'm helping someone else. I truly believe they need to learn something from the mentor. It's a, it's a bi-directional mentorship. So I think that it worked for both of us. So the mentors, you know, a few years later, did you get them through going to the networking groups or joining that, you said, peer support group? Yeah, I moved from Memphis to Asheville, North Carolina about six years ago, and I stayed and basically joined a new group there. And the chair was basically became my mentor and and a very good friend. By the way, I I lost. He passed. 
a few months ago, but he, he's been, you know, there are a lot of decisions in, in building a business and growing the business that these mentors have. I would not be able to do that without their work and without their advice and without their support. And it's important to note to the listeners that when we're building a business, we cannot do this alone. Reach out for help because people will help. There's a lot of times immigrants think that they should do this all by themselves or asking for help is a sign of weakness. I know in the Russian community, that's completely true. We don't ask for help. And especially as immigrants in a brand new country, we have to tough it out and we have to just struggle and fail and fail and fail again and then kind of succeed 10 years later. So I'm hearing a lot that mentorship is really, really important in this business growth because it'll bring us faster success than when we would have done it by ourselves, right? Completely agree. And there is, right, as we go back to kind of like our roots, right, there's a word called chutzpah in Hebrew or Yiddish, right, that in here, it means more of kind of like audacity, right? Like I had a lot of audacity and a lot of chutzpah in, when I started the business, like to reach out to different people. I normally would not reach you. You wouldn't think to reach out, right? Like I, I went and I started organizing meetings for myself with, with a lot of people in the community that I don't think they've got that unsolicited email and a phone call and then another phone call and another phone call and, you know, <laughs> me st- stalking next to their office. Like I, there was a lot of that. I'm definitely not afraid to ask for help. And I'm also not afraid to say, hey, I can solve that problem. So trust me and we're going to make it work. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that in my journey as well. Mm-hmm. I love it. And so tell, tell me a little bit about marketing. I know you mentioned in the beginning stages, this was all organically and probably based just on referrals and the business grew like that. But what about now? Do you guys do any Facebook ads, Google ads, any other ads? We don't do a lot of paid advertising, but we do a lot of marketing. So we generate, so if you go back to this, where we really started with me answering questions and sharing knowledge, we've really used that and leveraged that over the years and over our growth. We have been blogging, you know, I've been blogging, which was kind of funny to read my English writing from 10 years ago, but like (laughs) we've been consistently writing on our blog for at least once a week for a decade. Now I have other people that are writing with much better English than mine, but right. Like, so we've done a lot of, you know, thought leadership. We're doing a lot of webinars. We're doing a lot of eBooks and white papers and, and events. And now we're partnering, right? Like we're, we're starting to bring partners in into that as well, whether it's Salesforce or any other kind of like third party that wants to partner with us and kind of like provide brings value to our customers. So not a lot of, I don't know that we've spent, especially in the beginning, I only hired a marketing manager maybe four years ago, my first one. And until then, I operated our blog and all our social media accounts and Mm -hmm. everything else. So you can definitely, I think, especially today, like when there's so much stuff is online, you can do a lot without spending too much on it. Yeah. And when you said you're developing all this content, this is all just around nonprofit, cloud-based solutions, applications for nonprofits, right? Nonprofits hire it. Yes. Okay. Okay. So this is just going out there and plugging yourself in and getting out there in the community. Like you mentioned the blog. So that's all just generating traction to the website. Exactly. That definitely helps with SEO. There's still people just find us. It's like, how do you find, like, I remember, like, especially in the means, like, how do you find cloud for good? Like, it's just me in Memphis in, <laughs> in a one bedroom apartment. Like, how do you find us? Like, because we've generated so much content, it, we just got people's attention. Thank you so much for sharing that. So Tal, how do you stay productive throughout the days? Because I know there's so many things going on in the virtual world and the virtual space and running a company and especially in different time zones. What are some tactics that you've implemented to ensure that you're getting your stuff done and everything's moving forward? Yeah, so I am not the best example of separating work-life balance. I work long hours. (laughs) But I think part of it is finding other people that can do as the business grows. It's always like, okay, what do I really get excited about? And what can someone else do better than me? I'm slowly stepping out of different processes that 
I was super involved with in the past. Like I used to be on every interview, right? Now I'm only sitting on interviews where people are hiring other people. So if we're hiring any managers or leaders, I'm sitting on their interviews. So there is some aspect of give some of the decision-making, some of the, some of the process and some of the kind of like the things that we do every day as entrepreneurs, giving it to other people and delegating to other people and knowing like how to step back and let other people make these decisions is not that easy. Mm-hmm. I feel like it has some negative context to back. I'm an inbox zero type of person. Like at the end of my day, I don't have any emails <laughs> in my inbox. That's good. So that that is like I start it, I finish it, I move on to the next thing. So I, I I'm able to soup to stay fully focused on something, finish it, move to the next thing. That's my method. Yeah. And so, and you mentioned that you were in almost every single interview in the beginning. And I think that's very important to notate that when you're first starting a business, it's really important to know the ins and outs and everything running about your business. Because I'm thinking that if you just started a startup and you raise a bunch of money and now you've hired a bunch of people now you don't know what's going on whereas you were just boots on the ground just in and out every single day you knew what was happening you knew where everything was going especially hiring people every every interview you were you sat on but now you got that experience now you can move on and say okay well, now we're going to have an HR person we're going to have a marketing person we're going to have you know all these different departments is that what I'm hearing? Completely. Now, that doesn't mean you stop being informed about what's going on in the business. Right, but right. You don't have to make every business decision, right? There are people that can do that better than you. And there's not enough time during the day to do every small thing. But I do think it's super important, at least in the beginning, to do a lot. Of, for me, it was super helpful to do every job. A cloud forget like I, everything from being a bookkeeper to running our social and marketing to doing actual implementation and sales and managing our sales team and managing the delivery team. So it gave me a lot of insight into kind of like how we operate and what we need to do better. You know, I'm able to speak with our leaders and not just from a point of view of like an outsider. Like I, I've done that work myself. So it's important to keep pulse on your business all the time. Yes, absolutely. And where did you hire the first couple of employees? My first couple of employees came from nonprofits. So my thinking was at that point that Salesforce is going to be easier to teach. Consulting is, I didn't really think about teaching consulting. And nonprofit is, is really going to be the differentiator, which it was helpful. I think our thinking as our projects became bigger and more complex has evolved over the years. And, you know, we're seeing this consulting and and the technology aspect of it is sometimes harder to teach. Consulting is more of like a, I always said, it's like, it's, it's a, you're a good consultant where you have a lot of battle scars. <laughs> that comes from experience. It's hard to teach that. Mm-hmm. So we're teaching more on the, on the industry side if they don't come from there. But yeah, but our first employees were just nonprofit. My first employee was a social worker. When I hired my first employees and, you know, first I didn't think anyone else can do it. Right. Like that, you know, it's crazy to say it right now, but I'm like, mm-hmm. how is someone else going to do this work? How is someone else going to be able to do that nonprofit and Salesforce and technology like consulting just like I'm doing? So it took me some time to a kind of like realize that, yeah, other people can do this much better than you, Tal. And mm-hmm. but also kind of like I needed to trust someone as I bring them into the business. And it was easier for me to hire someone that. I kind of knew before I hired them. All right. So tell, how do you reinvest in yourself to keep up to date with your industry? I read tons of blogs and listen to tons of podcasts. I have one webinar a week rule. So I try to join a webinar at least once a week or, you know, I normally listen to it after the recording is available. So like, mm-hmm. I, I still read The Salesforce release notes, which, you know, have grown from just a few pages to hundreds of pages. (laughs) I still try to like we have a very active Q&A group kind of like within within our chat system. (laughs) I still try to answer some of the questions (laughs) and I follow the questions. I get very excited when I get something right. So that's how, again, I, I still like to be involved and try to get some of these boards and answers correctly. What are some of the podcasts that you can share with our listeners? 
So I listened to How I Built This is a great podcast for yes, uh, entrepreneurs. Yes, it's by far one of my favorite podcasts. And I, I listen to a lot of like economic podcasts like, you know, Planet Money and The Indicator and others and some you know, I listen to all my competitors' podcasts. I'm probably the one some of them. I don't think I have a lot of them listening. I listen to them. It's important for me to know what they're doing and how they're messaging and how they're thinking about stuff. Mm-hmm. Did you go to the How I Built This Summit? I didn't. No? Oh, okay. I didn't. I really should have. And I, I think yeah. I, I think life took over. <laughs> no, it's okay. Yeah, it was, it was really, really awesome. It was like four days long. I mean, you huh? get to meet everyone from all over the nation and the world. People were plugging in from all kinds of different countries. It was, it was awesome. But yeah, no, I love Guy Ross's episodes. You learn so so much from listening, like you said, listening and learning from other entrepreneurs, from other CEOs. And then from every single story, you can at least implement one thing in your business. I love that. I always tell people, if I'm happy to sit for an eight hour lecture about something, if I can get one thing, if I can walk with one thing that I didn't know before that I can go and implement, that was worth my full day of listening to something. All right. So Tal, let's switch gears and talk about the not so positive side of entrepreneurship, the mistakes and failures, because I know there's always a story behind the mistakes that we make. So is there anything that you can share with us through your journey? Just think back from either early stages or recently where you've implemented something positive out of the mistakes or out of the failures and saw a drastic shift or saw a success on the other side. I have made so many mistakes in the last decade. (laughs) So I'd say the key learnings early on, I think it was like maybe 2014, 2013. One of the first managers I hired, she quit. She was fantastic, super smart, capable. She said, you know, I I can't do this job because you you don't trust me. You're not letting me do what I'm really good at. And, you know, no matter how much I try to convince her that it's going to be different, she left. And I think that was a key moment for me in realizing that, you know, to really grow this thing, I have to learn how to delegate. I have to learn how to, right, like how to let other people do their job and not be in their business and not micromanage them all the time. Even when I thought I am not micromanaging her, clearly I was. So I think that was one of the biggest learning moments for me. Mm-hmm. But there's so, you know, we've implemented new lines of business that didn't work. We built a product and, you know, had nice growing number of subscribers kind of like moved from a service to a SaaS on top of Salesforce. And then we made a decision that it's just not, we're not a product company. I don't, I can't run a product company and a services company at the same time. So we sold that product. So there are tons of, tons of mistakes (laughs) that I've made over the years. How did you manage to move forward with all those mistakes? On the people side, I think that it's important to understand, right? Like that you can go find other people, people leave and that's okay. And uh, while we take it very personally, when, when it's your business, it is okay. People, people find other, other jobs that might be better fit for them. And I think that kind of like realizing that and going and now with my learning, go and hire the next person and, and make that work on the products and line of businesses. It's, you know, I try to open the expand to Europe and I open the a branch in the Netherlands and then in Germany and then in in wow. the UK and then I closed it off because it didn't make sense. I spent tons of money, tons of time on places where the return was not as big as, as in North America. So mm-hmm. I think part of it was also, yes, take the risk, but also constantly evaluate and don't be afraid to say I made a mistake. I think a lot of the time people, because of the sunk cost of, or they, they're afraid to to say out loud that, that they've made a mistake, they keep doing something that they should have stopped doing long time ago. So powerful. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. So Tal, what does the American dream mean to you? I think that the most basic definition of the American dream, like I, you know, I moved here with nothing and started something really big. I don't know that I could have done that in other places. The market in the U.S. is so big and that our ability to deliver, you know, our solutions remotely 
and grow a company from zero, that is, I think, the definition of the American dream. And let's say it's it's important to note that it's Memphis is where it's happening, not the Silicon Valley. <laughs> it started in Memphis and then now I'm in Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah. So again, like no one even knew what I'm talking about. Like in the beginning, I had to explain people what's the cloud and definitely nobody knew what Salesforce is. <laughs> yeah, Memphis probably made more sense than Silicon Valley. I think if I were in Silicon Valley, I, rent would be much higher. In, like, you know, finding my first employee would be much harder. Probably would have to pay him much more than what I paid yeah. him. And, and, you know, my first big client was in Memphis and the competition just didn't bother. They were transformative for me. And, but just, you know, there's still customers in, in other parts of the U.S. that are not in the Bay Area or in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing story. So what are some things you would advise the next aspiring immigrant that wants to start their own business, especially someone who's coming with nothing? (laughs) So I'd say lean on your community. I think immigrants tend to find their communities. I know that it's a lot like with Israelis, but I know with, with other groups that find kind of like that community and try to lean on them, at least in the beginning, if you don't have a family in the U.S. when you move here. Or try to build the community, right? So I, I just started going to a co-working space just to meet people, just to be around people, right? And, and try to absorb some of their wisdom. So, you know, try to connect with the local community and just do it. Like, just don't be afraid to start something. That would be my advice to anyone that wants to be an entrepreneur. Just do it. Just do it. I love it. Take that risk and do it. I love ending the show with just coming out from Israel and your word of advice. Just do it. Don't be afraid to take that risk. And Tal, thank you so, so much. Your journey is going to be truly inspirational and is going to benefit all of our immigrants listening. So thank you so much for coming on and I wish you all the best of successes. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. And yeah, I really appreciate this time. Alrighty, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. If there are any links that were mentioned in this episode, make sure to check them out on my website under this episode to find all the links conveniently located in the show notes. I just wanted to ask for a quick favor. If you could please leave a review wherever you're at listening to this podcast. Also, if you're an immigrant entrepreneur and would love to be on my podcast, please email me and we'll get connected. I'll see you guys all next time for another exciting and impactful episode. Take care.